You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Lord's Prayer, often recited but rarely understood, A better understanding of the Lord's Prayer will give us the meaning and the implications of the name of God, the significance of the Kingdom and the importance of forgiveness. True meaning of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord, of course, being Jesus Christ who authored the prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is an exceedingly well-known prayer. Almost everyone who has a Christian background has heard the prayer and has probably recited the prayer. And indeed, anyone with an interest in Australian politics has probably heard the prayer because the standing orders for the House of Representatives and the Senate in federal parliament and some of the states uh, has the Lord's Prayer read out at the start of a day's sitting. And the prayer's been read out in Australian parliament for 120 years. So I thought we'll just have a listen to the Lord's Prayer being read out in parliament to start off with. Members, the speaker. I acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Gambi peoples who are the traditional custodians of the Canberra area and pay respects to their elders past and present of all Australia's indigenous peoples. Almighty God, we humbly beseech thee to vouchsafe thy blessing upon this parliament, direct and prosper our deliberations to the advancement of thy glory and the true welfare of the people of Australia. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Alright, so there you have the prayer being read out in the Parliament. So what, why is the Lord's Prayer read out in the Australian Parliament? Well, when Australia was federated, it was essentially a Christian nation. Um, and the, the people who were in the Parliament then thought it would be appropriate to start Parliament with a prayer. Now here's some uh, interesting statistics uh, about the religion of Australians. Back in 1966 there was 88% of people were Christian uh, through to 2016 when only 52% were Christian and then the data released this week uh, from the 2021 census only 43% of people are Christian. So Australia is becoming less and less Christian, more secular and so, of course, the, the prayer in Parliament is losing its relevance and will probably be removed at some stage. And what I hope to demonstrate tonight is that the prayer being read out in Parliament is somewhat ironic, uh, given what the prayer contains. So our title tonight, The Lord's Prayer, often recited but rarely understood. And I think the prayer being read out in Parliament is a perfect example of that. So let's now look at the background to the Lord's Prayer. 
And the Lord's Prayer is found, as we read tonight, in the book of Matthew. And here's the events that lead up to the time that Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus, who his forefathers were. And then we have the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. In Matthew chapter 2, wise men come from the east to visit Jesus. And, Herod, and Jesus, Jesus' family uh, flees to Egypt in, in fear of Herod. And then the family returns from Egypt and goes to Nazareth. So in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is now 30 years of age and he's about to begin his public ministry. So you have the ministry of John the Baptist uh, preparing the way for Jesus and you have the baptism of Jesus recorded by John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted, Jesus calls his disciples and he begins preaching in Galilee. And then Matthew 5, 6 and 7, we have what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in this sermon that that Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, as we read. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus is growing in popularity with with the people. And in chapter 5, he goes up into a mountain. Those who really wanted to hear the words of Jesus made the effort to follow Jesus up into the mountain. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And then we have this sermon that Jesus gives. And the Sermon on the Mount really gets to the heart of the moral teachings of Jesus Christ. If you you want a summary of the principles of God and and the principles of Jesus, well then Matthew 5 to 7 is what you need need to read. Of course, we don't have time this evening to read the whole lot, but we've read a a snippet from Matthew chapter 6. So let's jump now straight to the part that contains the Lord's Prayer. So... As we read in chapter 6, Jesus is giving instructions on how to pray to God. He says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Hypocrites, someone who does one thing, but says one thing, but does another. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So the Jewish religious leaders in the days of Jesus Christ, they had a problem with pride. And they would stand on the street corners and pray to be seen of men. Now, if we did that today, people would just think we're weird, but not in the days of Jesus. The people really looked up to these religious leaders, but they weren't praying in sincerity to God. They were praying because they wanted the praise of men. But thou, says Jesus, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So you can see that the need for humility, the need for sincerity when offering prayers to Almighty God. And he also mentions that there's a, <coughs> a hope, a, a reward. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. So Jesus then goes through and gives the Lord's Prayer. So we'll read it now and I'll highlight the different sections that we're going to consider this evening. Our Father which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. So as you can see, the structure we're going to take is we're going to consider God. We're going to consider what God's name is. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God and then talk about some of these requests for the blessings of God. So let's start talking about God. The first thing we learn from the prayer is that God is a father and that he resides in heaven. And the Bible is full of information about God. And I want to take you to a few of the passages in the Bible that talk about God. So the first verse is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. So the Bible's claiming that there's a God who's created all things. It also implies that God is without a beginning. What do I mean by that? Well, it says, In the beginning, God created. How could God create the heavens and the earth? if he did not already exist. You can only create something if you exist. So God had to exist before the beginning that's described in this verse. Think of it this way. A young baby begins to exist because its mother and father caused it to come into existence. God is the father of the universe and he has caused the heavens and the earth to come into existence. And if you don't believe in God, then you must necessarily believe that Nothing has caused everything to come into existence. And the problem with that belief is that nothing causes nothing. And nothing can do nothing but nothing. So, so the universe coming into existence requires a cause. And that cause is God, as Genesis 1 verse 1 describes. Now, a common objection to this line of reasoning from atheists is, well, if God created the universe, then who created God? And to ask that question is to misunderstand the concept of God. God always has existed and he always will exist. And that is how the Bible describes God. And this comes out in the next quote from Psalm 90. This is a, a prayer of Moses. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, says Moses. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is from everlasting and to everlasting. Doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end. He just is. God is also described as having a physical dwelling place that no human beings can approach unto. 1 Timothy 6, which in times, in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. So God has a physical form. No human being can see God and live. But God is, while he is so distant, he is also near to us in another sense. He's near to us because his spirit sustains all life. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul said to the Athenians. They that, should, <coughs> that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in God we live, move, and have our being. As certain of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. <coughs> so we are the offspring of God. And that's why the Lord's, Lord's Prayer refers to God as a father. He is the one who has created the heavens and the earth and who sustains us. And it goes further than this because God as a father has an interest in our lives. So here's two scriptures that speak about this. The first one, as a father hath compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God is a compassionate God. He has compassion on those who fear him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So God is a God of love who disciplines his children. So God can be alive and active in our lives, despite being so far from us physically. So in summary, this is what we've learned about God. Just, just by looking at a few Bible passages. That God has created all things. God has no beginning. He has no end. God physically dwells in heaven and he cannot be seen literally by human beings. God is everywhere present by his spirit power sustaining our lives. And God is a father. He has an interest in the lives of his creation. This brings us to the next part of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. What is the name of God? Well, to explain the name of God, we need to start in Exodus chapter 3, where the name of God is revealed to the man called Moses. So Moses was keeping sheep in the region of Mount Horeb, and an angel of God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. Here's the record of that. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So there we have this record of the, the burning bush that Moses saw. Now what's really interesting to note here is that an angel of God is called God. So an angel appeared of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And then later, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So an angel is called God. And that's because the angel manifested or represented God to Moses. And this is a key concept that we need to grasp if we're to understand the name of God as mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. The concept is this, that beings other than God himself 
are able to represent God and actually be called God. So there's a, there's a few names for God here. We're talking about the name of God in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. And here's a few names for God. We have the Lord, and then we also have the English word God. Now, the Old Testament scriptures were written in the Hebrew language. So the word the Lord in English is actually a proper noun. And it is the name Yahweh which is how you pronounce it in Hebrew. And, and the meaning of Yahweh is he who will be. It, it's a bit of a strange uh, name meaning, but we'll flesh this out a bit as we, as we go. The other name for God here is God in English. And in the Hebrew language, this word is pronounced Elohim. And it's a plural word. It means mighty ones, plural. So these are the names of God here. Now the angel went on to explain to Moses that it was God's intention to save the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt and God's intention was to send Moses to save them and bring them into their own land. Moses asked God to reveal his name so that he could tell the, the Israelites what God's name was and who was sending him. So we'll read that. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, to save them from Egypt, and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? Moses is saying, God, I need to know your name, so I can tell the children of Israel your name. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God moreover said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So Moses asked to, to know the name of God. So we have some more names of God revealed here. The first one is, in English, the Lord God. And this is a combination of the two we looked, looked at before, the word Yahweh and the word Elohim. <clears throat> and the meaning is, he who will be mighty ones. And we'll have more to say about that. Another name is, I am that I am. And in Hebrew, that is, Aya Asher Aya. And it really means, I will be who I will be. And then finally, we have the name I am, which is a, sh a short, shorter form of the I am that I am. And in Hebrew, that is aya, and it means I will be. So, I don't know about you, but I find it a bit strange that someone would be called I will be, or he who will be, or I will be who I will be. And... Just imagine if you went up to somebody and said, hello, what's your name? And they said, I am that I am. Or, I will be who I will be. Like, okay. Or, or you said, what's your name? And they said, oh, I am he who will be mighty ones. So it's a strange name. And it, it's strange because it's, it's actually a verb. That the, These names contain a verb, which is the verb to be, the, the fundament, the most, one of the most fundamental verbs of any language, the verb to be. It basically means to exist. And 
the in English are in the first person. This is the, the verb to be in English. In, in the past tense, you would say, I was like, I was a boy. In the present tense, you would say, I am, like, I am a man. Or in the future tense, you would say, I will be, I will be an older man. And then in the second person, where you're not talking about yourself, you're talking directly to someone else, you would say, well, you were a boy, you are a man, or you will be an old, an old person. Still a man, though. And in the third person, is you're referring to, to, to not yourself, not someone directly, but someone over there. He was a boy, he is a man, he will be an older man. So this is the conjugation of the, the English verb uh, to be in the first, second, third persons, past, present, future. What's, what's really interesting about the name of God is that Aya, I will be, is the first person future tense of the verb to be in the, in the Hebrew. And it kind of begs the question, what will God be? You're sort of left hanging. What, what, what is God going to be? Well, the other name for God, I will be, who I will be, Aya Asha Aya, sort of answers the question. God will be whoever he will be. God is the almighty creator of the universe. He can become and, and be whoever he wants to be. But it still sort of leaves you asking the question, well, what will God be? And the other name of God, Yahweh, which means he who will be, is the third person form. So if when God speaks, he says, I will be. But when we speak of God, we say, he will be. Because then he's, he's the third person. So, yeah, it's quite interesting to see how God's name relates to this verb to be. But what, what will God be? Who will he be? Well, you, you can answer that from the other name of God. God is the Hebrew word Elohim, which means mighty ones. And when, when these two are combined, as we saw, it means he who will be mighty ones, plural. So this answers the question, what will God become? Well, he's going to become mighty ones. God's purpose, you see, is to be manifest in a group of people, a group of mighty ones. We saw that angels can manifest and represent God. And the great news is that we too also can be a part of those mighty ones who can manifest Almighty God. We can become part of God's name. We can become representatives for God himself. That's the hope of the Bible. In other words, God is a father. He's inviting us to be a part of his family, like a family name. So let's come back to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God is a father. He wants to adopt people into his family name. God's name is Yahweh Elohim, he who will be mighty ones. And if we join God's family, we can be those mighty ones. Now the word hallowed, means holy or, or separate. So God is calling people to be separate from the world to come under his name, to be a part of his purpose. 
And here's some more quotes from the Bible about that. Acts 15. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So, so God is calling out of the world individuals to be a part of his name, a part of his purpose. And Jesus Christ was a good example of one of those people who are called was called to the name of God and, and manifested and represented God. He said, I have manifested thy name unto all men, the words of Jesus. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. So Jesus is, was a manifestation of the name of God, and we can do the same. It's God's purpose to call people out of the nations to be a part of his family. Now, in considering the name of God, we've essentially jumped into the deep end of a pool. So, so let's get out of the pool, go around to the shallow end of the pool and, and get in and consider God's purpose with the earth from, from a different angle. And that angle is the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. This is a statement of God's purpose, the kingdom of God, when God's will will be done on the earth. Now, if there's one verse in the Bible which summarizes the purpose of God, it's this one. Numbers 14, 21. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So God is swearing by his own existence. And remember that God is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet he swears by his own existence. And says, all the earth is going to be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Now, if, if you read this in parallel with, with the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The earth shall be filled with thy glory. You would have to expect that God's glory filling the earth has something to do with God's will being done in the earth. But let's explore what the glory of Yahweh is. What is the glory of Yahweh? Well, Moses, he asked what God's name was, but he also asked God what his glory was. And that is in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses said, I beseech thee, God, show me thy glory. He wants to know what God's glory is. And God said, well, I will, Moses. I'll make all my goodness to pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses wants to see God's glory and God says, I'll show it to you. I'll make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim the name of Yahweh. And then in the next chapter, chapter 34, God does these things. And Yahweh descended in a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh. Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So these here are the characteristics of God himself. And these are characteristics that human beings can also manifest. Humans can be forgiving. We can develop mercy. We can show, show people forgiveness 
and we can be merciful and gracious. And this is not the only time in the Bible that these characteristics are explained. They're also explained in the New Testament scriptures. They're called the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. These are the characteristics that God would have us to develop. So when we read the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And when we read, As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. What we need to understand is that God's purpose is to fill the earth with his characteristics of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Now, some of these characteristics are already in the world, like most people experience some love. Most people have a bit of joy, not all. Um, most places in the world are, are at peace, not, not some, unfortunately. Long-suffering, people, some people are long-suffering, others are not. Uh, most people show some gentleness, like most parents are gentle with their babies. Goodness, some people show that. People have faith in various things. Some people show great meekness and temperance. But the earth is not filled with these things. There's just as, just as much as the opposite of, of these things as there is these things. So won't it be wonderful when all evil is, is removed from the world and these characteristics fill the earth? And that's the hope of the Bible. I want to share with you a few more things about this kingdom of God which Jesus teaches us to pray for. Now, in the Bible, there was a prophet called Daniel. And he interpreted a dream that the king of Babylon had. The king of Babylon was called Nebuchadnezzar. And here's an uh, illustration of the dream that he had. He saw this giant image in his dream. And the, the head was of gold. The chest and the arms were of, of silver. The belly and thighs were of brass. The legs were of iron and the feet were of iron and, iron and clay. And it was a mighty image. And all of a sudden, this rock that was cut out of the mountains without hands... That looks like a diamond there, but it was, it was a rock. probably wasn't blue. It, it smashed the image on the feet and ground it to powder. And then the wind came along and just blew the dust away into nothing. And then the rock just expanded and expanded and, and ended up filling the entire world. So it's quite a bizarre dream, really. Almost, you might almost call it a nightmare. King Nebuchadnezzar was certainly quite scared of, of what he saw. But Daniel went on to explain to Nebuchadnezzar that the dream represented successive nations that would come in the world. And he, he went on to explain that the stone would be a change of government where all the nations of this world would be removed and God's kingdom would fill the earth. So here's what he said. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And in the dream, the rock filled the entire world. So that implies that this kingdom is going to be a worldwide kingdom. So I mentioned at the start that it's ironic that the Lord's Prayer is read out in the Australian Parliament. And, and this is why I believe it's ironic. The nations of this world are going to have to give up their sovereignty... They're going to have to submit to the rule of the kingdom of God. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Do the parliamentarians know what they're praying for? I, I, I doubt they do. <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer, it's often recited, but it's rarely understood. You know, Australia is going to be a very different place in the kingdom of God. The whole world's going to be a different place. Here's a few things about the kingdom of God from the Bible. It's going to have a king, and the king is going to be Jesus Christ. Jesus shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The kingdom's going to have a land. It's going to be the whole earth. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's going to have a capital city, Jerusalem. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. It's going to have subjects. The subjects of the kingdom of God will be all the nations, everyone on earth. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. And the him is reference to Jesus Christ, who is the king. And it's going to have a law. They're going to be God's laws. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this is what the Lord's Prayer is asking us to pray for. This coming kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now the next part of the prayer is the requests for the blessings of God. God is not against us as humans. God is absolutely for us. And he wants, us, he wants to help us be a part of his purpose with this earth. And so he's offered us amazing blessings which we only have to ask for. And that's why Jesus instructs us to ask for these blessings. Now the first step is to develop reliance and develop thankfulness to Almighty God who's provided for all of our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. When we pray this, we're acknowledging that God is the one who provides the food and the clothing and everything we have need of. I can't cause crops to grow. I mean, I can buy a muesli bar from the shops, but, but that's come from crops that, that just grow. See, God is the provider of everything. There's another level to this too. We need spiritual food. There's a spiritual element that we need. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. So we're eating spiritual bread tonight as we're considering the Lord's Prayer. The words of Jesus are like spiritual food which help us understand God and his purpose with this earth. We have another great need. And that is the need for forgiveness. And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is a very important topic if we wish to be a part of the purpose of God. <clears throat> and forgiveness is required because every human being sins before God. Sin is fundamentally the disobedience to God's words. And sin is interesting, an interesting word in the Bible. Here's a quotation about sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Just think about an arrow aiming for the bullseye and the arrow falls short and doesn't, doesn't meet the target. This is what the word sinned means. In the Greek, which I can't speak so I won't try and pronounce, the word means to miss the mark. So it has this idea of, of aiming for a mark but missing it. And the mark is the character of God. 
those principles of, of, of God that we looked at. And we sin when we don't live up to those principles. So we need the forgiveness of God. But forgiveness is contingent upon something. We don't automatically gain forgiveness from God. To have forgiveness, it requires us to be forgiving to other people. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is one of the characteristics of God. And to have forgiveness, we need to show forgiveness. Forgiveness requires repentance and a change of lifestyle. That's the implication. And the very next words of Jesus in after the Lord's Prayer are these. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So it just shows the importance of developing the character of God and showing forgiveness to be able to have forgiveness for ourselves. Now there's differing views on how forgiveness can be achieved in, in different branches of Christianity. And probably the most common um, view on how forgiveness is achieved is called substitution. I'll explain to you how it works. We have sinned and we are in debt to God. And we have to pay, to pay the debt back to God, we need to die. And, and, and the reason we have to die is because God has decreed that the wages of sin is death. God is holy. He can't tolerate sin. And he says the wages of sin is death. So, so we must die to pay, the, to pay the debt for our sin. But the belief is, in this theory of substitution, that Jesus has paid our debts by dying instead of us. Our sins were transferred to Jesus. He died and he paid the debt. He died instead of us. And therefore, we can gain eternal life because our debt has been paid for us by Jesus Christ. This is the theory of substitution. Now, as Christadelphians, we believe this is a wrong theory. And one of the reasons why we think it is wrong because it leaves forgiveness out of the picture. If our debts are paid, then we don't need to be forgiven of our debts, as the Lord's Prayer says. Under this theory, we can gain eternal life because our debt has been paid for by Jesus Christ. It's been paid for. It hasn't been forgiven. But yet the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. So I suggest that this doctrine of substitution is, is inconsistent with the teaching of the Lord's Prayer. Okay, so what's, what's theory two? This is the one that us as Christadelphians believe. This is how it works. We have sinned. We are in debt to God. To pay the debt, we must die. The wages of sin is death. On the cross, Jesus Christ declared that sin must be morally put to death in our lives. An example of that would be, instead of being selfish, we need to be willing to forgive other people. Like Jesus on the cross said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do to the people crucifying him. And he rose to newness of life. He conquered death. In God's grace, God is willing to forgive us if we join his family, come into his name, and follow the footsteps of his son. 
We can gain eternal life because we have been forgiven. So in this theory, forgiveness is everything. Forgiveness is at the heart of this doctrine of representation. And that's why Jesus instructs us in the Lord's Prayer to say, to say when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's contingent upon us manifesting the character of God and being in his name, rising to a newness of life like Jesus uh, rose from the dead. We need to rise to a newness of life morally. So the prayer goes on and says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is a, requ a request for God to guide our lives and to protect us from sin. Temptation is not sin, but it is the first step towards sin. And the reason we need to be protected from temptation is because we have human nature, which is very prone to giving in to temptation and sinning. A nature that chooses to go down the path of sin when we attempted. So we need God's help to be protected from temptation. Here's, here's the process. James chapter 1. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So there's a process here. Temptation, enticement, sin, death. Our lusts cause us to be tempted. When we give in to temptation, it leads to sin. And when we sin, it leads to death. Unless, of course, we're in God's family and have the gracious gift of forgiveness in Christ. So we're nearly at the end of this prayer. The final section says... For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is an acknowledgement of God's purpose. Thine is the kingdom. As we've seen, the kingdom is all about God. God is going to be manifest throughout this world. His character is going to fill the world. That's his purpose. Thine is the kingdom. It's an acknowledgement of that. Thine is the power. Salvation is only possible through the grace of God. God can do all things by his power. Thine is the glory. It's God's glory that's going to fill the earth, as we've seen. Forever, as the prayer says. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. This is the hope of the Bible. So our title tonight was The Lord's Prayer, Often Recited But Rarely Understood. And my intention tonight was to explain the true meaning of the Lord's Prayer. We've talked about God, we've talked about God's name, we've talked about the kingdom of God, we've talked about the request for God's blessings. And so I hope, I hope the presentation has made sense, and of course the Christadelphians would love to speak to you more, both about the Lord's Prayer and about any Bible topic. So thank you.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.